0: friends and listeners, we're Healthscape, a podcast exploring the healthcare ecosystem through intimate conversations with healthcare's biggest leaders. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Club and supported by the Healthcare at Kellogg program at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Welcome to the Healthscape podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Tannenbaum. We're excited to welcome today's guest, Fabio LaMola. Fabio is a partner at LEK Consulting, serving as head of the Singapore office and global co-head of the firm's healthcare practice. Fabio is a Kellogg alum and received his bachelor's in international business from Bocconi University in Milan. Fabio, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to kick things off by discussing a little bit about your career experience. Specifically, are you able to share anything about what you're doing now in your current role and if there are any particular projects or challenges that you'd be able to share with us? Sure.
1: First of all, thank you, Jessica, for having me. Uh, it's great to be back at Kellogg, even though it's it's virtual at this time. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yes, I've so I've been in healthcare actually after Kellogg. So I started, um, post my MBA, I started with uh and then after that went on to um, LEK and then in London, China, and now Singapore for the last eight years. And um, right now what I do is I coordinate the efforts for LEK across Asia Pacific. So from Japan to uh, India. And um, the majority of work is really for companies Healthcare companies, primarily pharma medical devices in some hospitals, to uh, support their growth plans. Uh, so, you were asking around what I'm doing in my current role. My job is actually devoted to, for example, helping mRNA companies expand into Asia Pacific, supporting the potential alliances for vaccines across emerging markets, um, helping hospitals digitalize across emerging markets. The last one we've done is actually public news uh, with AFC in Sri Lanka. Um, So There has been a a number of these uh, projects that have helped essentially the system here modernize a bit faster than it otherwise would have.
0: Great. No, that's I would love to talk about your specific projects in more depth, but first just would love to hear a little bit about how you made the pivot into healthcare and if you have any advice for any current students that are kind of also looking to switch into the
1: field. Uh, I would say no specific advice. Mine was a bit of a chance, to be honest. Uh, the, the job at the time that I got after Kellogg was with ZS Associates, which is a company that actually was founded in Kellogg. And, um, and so I sort of fell into healthcare and no matter how hard I tried to, to, to do other things, I just was drawn back one way or the other. And so uh, I think my only advice is really, if you think you like the field, try it as your next job post grad um, because it's, um, it, it's a lot better to live it and see what you're actually getting into, um, than, you know. Then essentially trying to uh, trying to get through other routes. I think any job that you can get into healthcare is probably a good a good start.
0: So when you're looking at emerging talent and their background, it's mm-hmm. their healthcare specific experience is less important than maybe their functional expertise or the mindset that they bring to the table. Would you say that's true?
1: Yes. So. Uh, I would say that actually we don't specifically look for out of MBA at least we don't specifically look for healthcare skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, we look for sort of your general MBA um, skill set, which is really about problem solving, capability, um, structure issues, that sort of thing, but not not necessarily healthcare specific. No.
0: Got it. Um, and just another career specific question, kind of before we uh-huh. get your thoughts on the industry as a whole. Um, I know you talked a lot about your global experience. Um, Can you talk about how you um, kind of navigated working in different global hubs and how you find working in Singapore now compared to maybe other places
1: that you've lived? Sure. I think um, so. My first foray in Asia Pacific was in China. And the way it happened was that they needed um, some senior senior people in L.E.K. to move to China. And sort, of, sort of raised my hand. Um, so it was more, again, by, by chance. I saw the chance to, to go to Asia Pacific. It was a fast-growing region at the time. That was 2012, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I haven't looked back since because it's been a fantastic experience to see China um, growing really, really rapidly through um, the extension of universal healthcare during those years. And uh, after that, um, I had the chance to move to Singapore, and again, Singapore is uh, is a regional hub for a lot of healthcare companies. A lot of companies here have um, similar scope as mine, meaning they look from they look after Japan to China to India, and uh, you know every single country in between. And so, what happened was uh, the this what I've learned in China, which tends to be fifty percent of the revenues for most companies in in healthcare. Uh, in Asia-Pacific um, became really relevant for the Singapore market. And so I ended up staying here, primarily serving uh, Singapore HQs. Look, I think that the, you know, the skill set that, that is needed, uh, might sound trite, but it's really actually an open mind, is whenever you see an opportunity, just grab it and, and go and see what you can do. I think, honestly, it has become a little bit harder than it used to be uh, because of various visa issues um, uh, forget COVID for a second because that hopefully will pass. But visa issues have become a little bit more difficult in China and in Singapore. Um, but there is a lot of emerging markets where there is a lot of growth: Vietnam, Indonesia, um, India. So you you know there is a lot of opportunities that are going to rise over the next few years for for Kellogg grads and and in general in healthcare for uh, for people.
0: No, that is a perfect segue, because I would love to hear more kind of, I know you talked about specific areas. Can you talk a little bit about um, not just regionally, but I think um, technology-wise or treatment Mm -hmm. areas that you see are emerging in um, the region specifically?
1: So in the region specifically, I think that the biggest change we're seeing is the emergence of uh, single-payer universal care. Um, and that's what's driving a lot of the growth that you see in the headlines. Uh, there, is, there is two distinct factors. In, in Asia, there is a significant increase on uh, um, individual income. And so you see your GDP per capita increase and your income increase relatively faster than other regions. And so that is fueling the private side of healthcare. And on the other side, you're seeing governments covering more and more of their population for universal healthcare. That has happened in India in 2014 and is still driving, sorry, in Indonesia in 2014 and is still driving growth now. Um, It has happened in India in 2018, in China around 2011, 2012, where the insurances were extended, um, in Vietnam. And so you're seeing a lot of that resulting growth into going into infrastructure for healthcare. So a lot of hospitals being built, a lot of hospitals being kitted. Um, with uh, most times with the latest technology, actually, because doctors and, and countries don't really want to be left behind because of lack of money. They rather invest in the right things. Um, uh, and also what you're seeing, of course, is once hospitals are open, then you're seeing people using that universal health care. And so you're seeing a lot of growth in the various um, implantables and in drugs, in, uh, in uh, testing, and so i don't know necessarily that you are seeing a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of new treatments coming out of asia pacific mm. i think there is some good research coming out of uh, uh singapore there's some good research coming out of uh, japan i would say china there is some uh, but but it, so far they failed to produce truly innovative um breakthroughs mostly it's it's a fair amount of me too and and uh, some copies of uh, of some Western um, um, drugs, essentially. Uh, But the the truly innovative things are coming out primarily of, I would say, Singapore, Japan, um, uh, and Australia. I think China, you'll see some innovation coming out soon. Uh, It has been in the works for 10 years, and I've never seen that country fail one of their their five-year plan. So I suspect that you will see some soon. Um, And again, that's driving... things number one is driving the local growth because of course these treatments tend to be a little bit more affordable than the ones coming from the us and europe Um, but also you're seeing a lot of chinese companies expand outside of china into southeast asia and most of them are looking at europe and and the us to to as their next step and that's i think where the interest for People that have done an MBA like Hello is because a lot of that internationalization will require um, international mindset when when looking outside of your home country. And that's true for China, for India, for everywhere else pretty much.
0: And the vaccines example that you mentioned kind of mm-hmm. coming out of COVID just really speaks to that. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of your work in the vaccine space kind of as a um, microcosm for kind of the greater trends in the area?
1: Yeah, so I think, I, you know, it's interesting that, that a technology that has been in development for the last part of 10 years, and it was primarily aimed at oncology, has now become a worldwide phenomenon for vaccines. Because, yes, it was meant to be a vaccine in the first place, but it was meant to be a vaccine for oncology. Uh, and I'm talking about mRNA. Um, the interesting thing, I think, is that it has clearly shown to be a lot more effective than other modalities at this point. And uh, countries clearly, especially in Asia-Pacific, have seen the shortage of vaccines because they couldn't pay as much as um, the global players. So they have seen at least two different approaches and two different companies trying this in, in two different ways. One, one has been actually three, I would say. So one uh, has actually only gone into rich countries. So you're Australia or Japan to basically continue to sell the vaccine as, as they've done in the US and EU. Another one has taken a slightly different approach and they're going into the more emerging markets that done deals with, um, with various countries for production. So it's, it's actually in the news that Moderna has a plant in Australia and that uh, BioNTech actually has chosen Singapore as their next production hub. And then there is approaches like um, uh, Greenlight Bio, which actually started as a, as a agricultural mRNA company, meaning they would fight parasites through mRNA, into, um, again, looking at human health and looking at how that technology that was originally developed for agriculture, so almost most more cost-effective than, uh, than BioNTech or Moderna, can be applied to human health. Um, and so you're seeing, actually, a lot of different approaches with the same technology, uh, and that is driving, again, um, a fair amount of growth around emerging markets in Asia Pacific specifically. They are not necessarily novel approaches, but I think the the green light bio probably is the best example that I have in terms of uh, um, someone looking at human health from a different field. That, has not, that is not something that we've seen we've seen before this pandemic and before mRNA became um, famous, quote unquote.
0: Do you think part of the case for what we're seeing now is there has been criticism for some Western or wealthier countries that they're kind of hoarding vaccines or focusing on it inward. So um, certain countries are looking inward and looking to supply um, their own regions. You
1: no. Know, so I think that this has been a trend in any, in any case because countries realize that the only way to secure um vaccines was to have their own production. And some have gone with all the technologies. Some have had tech transfers from China for Sinovac. Uh, some are doing tech transfer from Russia for Cuba, uh, from Cuba. And so there is, there is a, there has always been a belief that you have to secure your own supply. Um, you know, the vaccine ordering, yes, there has been some of that going. Uh, it, it hasn't been a great, think showing from Europe or the US where they've initially, you know, started talking about how they were going to donate their their supply to COVAX and ensure that everyone was going to get vaccinated that that hasn't quite happened. But I think that the reality is that uh, the decision to have your own supply was pre, uh, pre the showing on COVAX essentially. So pre the but scene behavior. Got it, no,
0: that's helpful. Um, I think just shifting a little more generally, can you talk a little bit yep. about, um, I guess, the regulatory challenges of potentially um, manufacturing and then shipping to another country or kind of regulations for getting um, certain treatments approved uh-huh. in areas like um, Japan versus maybe a more emerging market?
1: Yeah, yeah. So look, I think actually the regulations are getting a little bit easier uh, than they used to be. So there is a for example, you used to need clinical trials in China. Now for certain drugs, you can be exempted from for from that. Um, It used to be used to need clinical trials in Vietnam. That's no longer the case. Uh, I think there is still some protectionist behavior. Uh, Clearly, that's coming a little bit from China on the manufacturing side. It's coming from Indonesia on the manufacturing side, uh, India to a certain extent, uh, but the, the rules and regulations are, are getting, I think, clearer, I think, as things, um, you know, move forward and companies and the countries, sorry, become more aware of the fact that um, in order to get life-drug, uh, sorry, life-saving drugs to their citizens, they will need to uh, to open up the borders a little bit more and, and be a little bit more um friendly to, to companies wanting to sell. And that's true whether these companies come from the West, so your European and US companies, but also from China or from India. Um, and so the regulatory environment is clearly evolving. I think where what is difficult and where it continues to be difficult is the reimbursement mm. of drugs. So that becomes uh, that is a major hurdle for most novel treatments. And it becomes really a discriminatory point around people that have money can be treated for the private system, and people that don't have money, but the public system doesn't have the money to pay. And so, you're seeing you're seeing a lot more of that, and you're seeing a lot more of uh, um, novel ways of being studied in order to get to reward innovation properly because that still needs to be done, but also to get these treatments into the hands of um, of everyone. Uh, and so you see uh, risk agreements, especially in Australia. Uh, you see new funds being put up for rare diseases in Singapore, for example, and in Malaysia. And so again, there is there is movement, but clearly it's slow. And you know, governments in emerging markets will have a number of different priorities that they need to attend to. It's not only healthcare, uh, right. and so budgeting becomes difficult. Um, and so what that's why you see sometimes choices that that you know, in, in Europe and in the U.S. would probably not be understood. I mean, why are you not covering that cancer patient with that latest drug? Um, but here they become, you know, unfortunately part of the normal trade-offs that some countries have to make to keep healthcare running.
0: Mm-hmm. When you're working with your country or with your clients about kind of looking at different markets to mm-hmm. penetrate or get into, how do you, I, this is kind of a, bold or kind of a broad question, but how do you Mm -hmm. work to reconcile kind of where they're extending access to care in potentially Mm. rural areas versus targeting the markets that will be the most lucrative?
1: So typically, um, I would say that what happens is the, the companies seek to enter most markets that they can. And they're clearly the first strata of patients that they can serve becomes the private side of things. Um, And it's less an issue of rural versus urban. It's more of an issue of income strata. Mm. Um, There really is the the question that is toughest to solve. But I would say most companies will will have a, what they call a patient assistance program where essentially, uh, you know, that the classic form is that you will buy one vial, say, and you get one for free. Um, and so that allows to do them to do two things. Number one, it allows them to maintain some price integrity in the face of the market. But it also allows them to serve at least a couple of strata down that they would normally be able to only with the headline price. So I think there is a couple of things. Number one is there is a desire from the industry itself to actually serve patients. Um, but clearly they have to they have to balance that with some of the commercial considerations that they have. Um, and two typically what we do is we we will let them design those type of patient assistance program to support that that wider adoption of that drug. Um, and so I think that the the again the commercial tension will always exist but there are ways of getting that drug into the hands of, of more people than you normally and otherwise would if you were not to enter a market.
0: That makes sense. No, thank you for clarifying. Um, I think just kind of taking a step back and shifting Mm -hmm. gears back to Kellogg students who are um, eager both to pursue healthcare and consulting, um, What are there specific opportunities or areas in the space that you see um, Kellogg students should pursue um, in particular?
1: Um, I think if it's consulting, there has been no better year to enter into, <laughs> into consulting in, in, in healthcare, to be honest, because uh, we have been flat out for the last 12 months. Um, and so if, if we could have hired people yesterday, we probably would have. Um, but it is, it is an industry that has been extremely resilient over the last COVID crisis, as you can imagine. Uh, the only industry that I've now seen miss a beat in terms of in terms of projects and, and revenues from a consulting perspective. Um, and so I think that that will continue through 2022. Um, and so my advice is choose your firms in terms of what they're good at. Uh, the healthcare, there is probably three consulting firms, four consulting firms that are really, really strong in it. Um, L.E.K. being one of them, we, we do, the majority of our projects actually are in, in healthcare. And uh, so I would say, if you're interested in healthcare and in consulting, make your choice wisely when you apply, because um, there are some firms that are stronger than others. Um, but again, there has been no better year than, than this to, to try again get into consulting. I think your recruiting season is coming up in uh, Jerry, things haven't changed. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's, still, it's still a very good market for, okay. for students.
0: Well, that's kind of great news to um, hear, especially as we end the year and kick off into 2022. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Is there any um, other questions that you have or kind of any other advice that you'd like to share with the CalA community?
1: I think uh, one of the things that I would say is you know, do have a little bit of a plan, two, three years, but keep an open mind on, on where your career will take you because sometimes it's unexpected and and unexpectedly becomes a lot of fun. So don't be too too fixated on your plan. Sometimes let uh, let things flow.
0: No, thank you. That's super helpful. And even with my past few months at Kellogg, I can attest that that is a good <laughs> to have. Um, well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate you joining us.
1: Thank you, Jessica.
0: Thank you for listening. Support us by subscribing to our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about healthcare at Kellogg, visit us at the website linked in our podcast description. Have a great day.